You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. I'm going to offer you a message, and while I do that, our children are going to go up and continue their meeting upstairs. Okay, let's get a volunteer to read from Luke 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 and then 8 through... uh, this is actually 8 through 15, not 21. 15, 8 through 15. Okay? Anyone? Amy? Did you volunteer? <laughs> Say this one to me. Say Quirinius. That'll help you when you get to that word. Okay. In those days, a decree went out from, sorry, the lights are from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. In that same region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. And Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as they had been told them. Thank you, Amy. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Today's the fourth Sunday of Advent, and traditionally in our community this day we remember the shepherds who received the announcement that Jesus was born. First week, you have prophets, then John the Baptist, then Mary, then the shepherds. Those are the banners that are here. The candles are lit for the same reason. These are all people who waited for Jesus and we're among them now. The shepherds, this, this, this account is only mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. And it's in chapter 2, and it's like from verses 8, just, just those like seven verses that we read, plus a little bit in the beginning I added. But I want to focus on this beginning part, these first three verses, okay? There isn't, like, I just want you to know, okay? These, this is, this is 1 through 3, and then this is 8 through 15. And then in the middle here, if you read the Bible, there's like the story of how Jesus was born. I'm not, we'll get to that on Christmas Eve. I'm not like skipping that particularly, okay? I just want you, like I'm not missing that part. I just can't. 
It's too much for one day. Okay? But I want to talk about how the story is framed. Luke begins by telling us that there's a decree from Caesar Augustus sent out that it called for a census for all the world to register. Luke gives us some details about the time. Like, it was, it was the first registration, and it was taken during, while well, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. The Bible is, is telling us the story of Jesus' birth. The Gospel of Luke is a biography of Jesus. Ultimately, it is literature. And the beginning framing here is a literary device used to help us understand the setting of the story. Okay, so they're telling us a story, the story of Jesus' birth, and this beginning part frames the story. Okay? And even though it is, a, it is a, to an extent, a historical account, the genre here is a, a, bio, a biography of Jesus, okay? I'm going to get too technical. It's not historiography. So historiography is the literature of history. This is a biography of Jesus. Those are two different things. You appreciate the difference? Just appreciate that they are different. I'll tell you why. It's a literary device because it's impossible to salvage the historical accuracy of the census. I'm not saying this didn't happen. I'm saying we cannot historically prove that it happened, which is curious because Caesar Augustus was a genuine person and censuses were real things. But we can't salvage the historical accuracy of this census. There was no report of an empire-wide census at all in history. There was no census at all during the reign of Herod the Great, which was the time that Luke frames this story. There was a later census following the Roman accusation of a certain territory in 7 CE, but this was after Herod died. Or BCE is when Herod died. And finally, the census that occurs in that moment in 7 CE is referred to by a Jewish historian named Josephus, Josephus as a uh, novel event, an event without recent uh, precedent, if you will. Okay? So all of this data helps us to know that it's challenging for us to prove that this census happened. Why, why does this matter? Why am I talking about this? Depending on your vantage point, if this census didn't occur at all, it might put into a question, question this whole account. You might not want to read the next verses. Because it's not accurate. Why would I read it? So it, puts into, it could put into question the entire narrative. And then for some of us, it could put into question the entire Bible. Now, I want to I think about this because whether, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, 
based on our life and our habits and the things we're interested in, in general, even those of us that profess faith. Um, a Bible study and Bible reading may not be a regular part of our Christian discipline. Maybe you think the Bible's cool, maybe you don't, whatever. But, you know, I know I don't like read it enough or read it regularly. Well, I'm going to be honest, I do. But, like, they're, they're, conceivably, you know, like, I, I don't take it with me on vacation, let's just say. Um, and maybe you're like that too. Uh, maybe you don't have any utility in studying the Bible. So, and maybe, maybe you don't because there's parts of it that don't make sense or part of it's parts of it that are scary or confusing. And I, I appreciate that. And you can journey with the text as you, as you want, as God reveals it to you. But I want to explain the parts to an extent that may give us pause. So if this census never happened, why engage with the text at all? Especially because there's traditions in Christianity that are very oriented around the Bible. And some people think that the Bible needs to be like pure, purely true in order to be useful, valuable. So some, some people would say it needs to be inerrant. Now, this isn't a term I use, but it has to be without error to be useful. And this, this refers to geogra- geogra- ge- geographical error, mathematical, you know, astrological, all sorts of things. All, every subject possible, if the Bible speaks on it, it has to be true. I'm saying Luke isn't writing that story in that way with this criteria. That's not how he is writing this story. We apply that idea. And when I say we, I mean a certain group of fundamentalist evangelicals that often propagate ideas about the Bible. This idea that the text needs to be pure, to be valuable, shows up again in some forms of Christianity. It's a a purity culture on its own. And that leads to all sorts of other kinds of purity culture. So, sometimes even purity culture that Christians before evangelicals have propagated. Propagated. I won't get into all of it, but it relates to like sexual purity culture. Um, the importance of abstinence, the importance of not having sex before you're married, these kind of ideas that a lot of people who grew up in the faith have within them. And I want to say this too. Even in this story, there is aspects of this purity culture that I think could be challenged or should be challenged. Because a major emphasis of a certain character in this story is that she's a virgin. And I'm not really prepared to, to directly challenge that. But I want you to know that the idea itself that Mary needed to be a virgin, to be pure, to give birth to Jesus, has led to all sorts of bad patterns, toxic patterns, abusive patterns in the church. And whether or not she was a virgin is one thing. What we do with that afterwards is important. So I want to name that this idea exists and that it has led to damaging things. 
There's a lot of reasons why that idea was put into place, that she was a virgin. And I just want to say that I don't find any of those ideas in our contemporary time uh, having much merit. I don't know why I would emphasize that as a pastor or talk about it. Don't know why. I, I can't find a reason. That's not to say the tradition is wrong or something. Although, you can think it's wrong and that's okay. I just don't know the point of emphasizing it in this context. Because of the damage purity culture has done. The idea that you're impure if you're not a virgin. And I just want to be careful because if you think that this passage needs to be accurate for it to be valuable, needs to be pure without blemish, so to speak, you know, our idea of what blemish is needs to be challenged. Because I don't think this passage is blemished, even though I don't think this census happened historically. I don't think that's what's happening. I don't, I don't, I'm not offended by the inaccuracy because I'm not holding that text to that criteria. It's not a criteria it holds itself to. It's not one that Jesus holds it to. So I'm not sure why I would either. But based on a certain criteria, there is a blemish to the text. Right? Luke is inaccurate. There is an error. But I wonder if the truth of the passage is more significant than the error. I don't think Luke was trying to write a historically accurate account. But he wasn't writing fiction either. You know, there is not just a, there isn't a binary there between whether this is historically accurate or whether it's fiction altogether. I think Luke thinks he's writing a a true enough story about Jesus. I don't think he's writing fiction. However, how we understand historical accuracy today doesn't make sense to apply to a first century context. Just not. It's a new idea. Everyone with me so far? Okay, you're tracking. Do you, do, you, do you think you know why I'm talking about this yet? If you don't, let's keep going. He did use this literary device of flaming, framing the story politically to make a truer point about the occasion. What do we learn in the first three verses? Caesar controls not only the Roman world, and Caesar does only control the Roman world in actuality, he, there's a hyperbole. The whole world is getting gathered. But that's, it's a literary and theological point. Why is he emphasizing the whole world is going to gather? Because, because of what, what will happen in the following portions. Caesar can push people around. He can move and influence Joseph and Mary to go to their hometown. Luke is telling us Caesar runs the world. The census is made for two reasons. So that you can be taxed and so that you can be conscripted to military service. Caesar can tell you where to be, can take your money, and can use your body for war. That's the power that Caesar has. That's what Luke is telling us in the first three verses. He's the emperor. He's the powerful one. Luke is telling us the the prevailing belief in all the world is that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is king. But something different is happening. 
because things are not as they seem. This humble family and this humble servant of God is carrying the one who will challenge and overturn Caesar and change the world, the one who kings will tremble before, the one who the wise will travel as will celebrate on Epiphany and genuflect before, kneel before Jesus. This baby savior changes the political order of the whole world. With this in mind, no wonder Luke didn't mind getting the details of this expiring empire's historical record wrong. It's not even that big of a concern to him because he's serving the one who defeated the emperor, who defeated Caesar. Something new is happening. Jesus is bringing something new because even though the prevailing belief is that Caesar is king and Caesar is Lord, in fact, Jesus is. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. We see it all over the story. It's a deeply political story. But we see it especially today. Jesus enters the world as a baby savior. A young, humble woman gives birth to him. And, and then he, this, this, this news is first revealed to the shepherds. The heavenly host appear to the lowly shepherds to proclaim the good news that Jesus is born. A new savior has arrived. A new king has arrived. A new lord has arrived. Caesar is about to be replaced. Shepherds are hated in the ancient world. They watch someone else's sheep. They watch someone else's property. They work in shifts. They stay up all night. But the angel's appearance to them showcases the disruptive reversal of Jesus' arrival. The political power brokers don't hear of Jesus' coming first. The lowliest people in the loneliest field in that little town of Bethlehem hear of Jesus. Jesus' birth first. And, and, and not significant town, not a political center, not politically powerful. Bethlehem is still, by the way, a town in Israel. Still as insignificant that as, it, as it was then politically. You know, it's funny. I was, uh, this is, I'm going off, sorry. I was reading a cooking magazine talking about Israel's food. And they mentioned Bethlehem. And the writer mentions the town Jesus was born in. It's like, that's still the main thing it's known for 2,000 years later. Like, I mean, maybe that's significant now because Christianity is a big deal. It's just interesting that, like, that's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the thing that happened there. Shepherds are hated, but they're revered in Israel's history. Who are the shepherds? Moses, shepherd. David, shepherd. Amos is a shepherd. They're lowly in their position, but elevated throughout the story. This reversal of the power of power to the lowly is not new with the coming of Jesus. It's, it's a tradition in, in Israel's history and Jewish history. Shepherds symbolize God's care for the most vulnerable. Those are the ones whom he favors. Pastors are named pastors because they're like they're 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 supposed to be shepherds too. 
Pastors are supposed to care for their people. Oftentimes, pastors protect the powerful or their own interests and do strange things. The beauty here is that this good shepherd, Jesus, that is arriving here is uplifting these lowly shepherds. The shepherd is found in... This shepherd, Jesus, is found in lowly estate. Just like these shepherds were in. These lowly people are terrified when the heavenly host arrive. They come to bring they, they don't come to bring fear. At least not to these people. Because they bring the bright good news of great joy for all people. Not for special people, not for elite people, but for all the people. What's the good news? What's the good news of Jesus? That a new ruler is arriving and he is granted three political titles here. Jesus is Savior, Messiah, Lord. And as this political ruler comes into the world in a topsy-turvy way in the form of a baby lying in a manger, he's given these explicitly political titles. And the angels are thrilled. They get to tell the, the story and they burst into song. Glory to the newborn king. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace among those he favors. The juxtaposition is crucial. God has given glory from the highest heaven. God is above all, supreme above all, and descends on earth and offers his favor to these lowly shepherds. Who does God's favor rest on? Let's go back to the Magnificat to see. Here's the quote from when Mary hears of She is giving birth to Jesus. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliest of his servant. The lowliest are favored. The lowliest are prioritized, who are elevated by God in the highest heaven. Jesus arrives to flatten hills and fill valleys, changes the whole world. They go to Bethlehem to see the Savior. This thing has taken place, which God has made known to them, and they're honored to be the first known. A beautiful acknowledgement of God's consistent provision for the lowly. Jesus arrives in the world to undo systems of death and oppression, and that is good news for everybody. Jesus doesn't merely come to be your personal Savior. I'm not saying he doesn't save you. I'm saying he saves the whole world. We follow Jesus in that work. His arrival signals the change. His disciples follow him and create a new way of relating. We're resisting the way of the world. We're forming something new. That's what Christmas is about. You know, Christmas needs to have consequential action. 
It doesn't need to fit into this political economy. It doesn't need to fit conveniently in our own lives. It disrupts our lives. It changes the order of things. It doesn't save them. Because if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. That's what Jesus says. But if you lose your life, you'll be saved. Who is threatened by this? The ones who are in grief at their loss of power, crying about their oppression instead of celebrating the liberation of those they oppress. Caesar, who gathers, the rule, who rules over all of Rome, is threatened by Jesus and will, will eventually kill him. So are local and religious leaders, political rulers. Pay attention to this now. Those who hold power over us, they're the ones who will need to kneel and be emptied, who Jesus didn't come to first, who come to Jesus. Jesus is going to the rulers. He doesn't go to the rulers who keep the orders the same. He goes to the lowly. The world is turning upside down. So we have to ask today, who is Caesar? And who are the shepherds? Who would Jesus reveal himself to today? When Jesus returns, who will he reveal himself to? How do we get ready for the return of Jesus? We assume the lowly posture of the shepherds. Maybe he returns to the workers fighting for their rights, or maybe he returns to trans people in Texas who, who the Attorney General is trying to put on a list. They're listing out who the trans people in Texas are, just like the, just like the Nazis listed out who the Jews were. Scary stuff, y'all. Maybe it's the immunocompromised and disabled who have to endure another holiday with lots of the country acting like we aren't in a pandemic any longer. Who does Jesus come to? The lowly, the oppressed, the poor. Who are the shepherds today? The workers, trans people, disabled people. The cosmic political nature of the incarnation is lost on us in our individualized Christmas holiday and our idea of Christian salvation. I read this column this week from Christianity Today that talked about how the message of the cross and Jesus dying for your sins has been taken, was taken over centuries from Christmas. And this guy was kind of mean when he was writing because he was like talking about like Oh Little Town of Bethlehem and Silent Night and Oh Holy Night and all these great songs and being like they're not they don't focus enough on individual atonement of your salvation, so they're not Christian enough. And I was like, hey, I like those songs. I, like those songs. You know, I was surprised at his hostility towards these songs that were, uh, he said, about emancipation and liberation and not about individual salvation. And I was like, wow, this is, you're really just telling us what you think. I'm telling you, Jesus came to save the whole world. That's the point of Christmas. Not just you. You know, this idea, I, I, I think that when you hear a phrase like, um, put like Christ back in Christmas, 
Or like uh, my mom had a mug that said, uh, Jesus is the reason for the season. You ever see a mug like this? I think it probably was branded on more than mugs. I think that's true. I do. And I think it's good to do that. But the meaning of that doesn't just revolve around your like personal Christian culture and your individual salvation. The consequences of that are significant. You know, like the political consequences of that are not like the people who are calling for this should be afraid for, because they're calling uh, to it. Like it is, a, it is co- costly because the people saying it are like the Caesars of our time. They're not the shepherds. So go ahead, you know, do that and then, and then tremble. What you're calling for is significant. He came to set the captives free. Just like he did with Israel. Came to redeem the world. And the oppressors, there's going to be a consequence. There's going to be judgment. There will be time for repentance. Just like John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know? There'll be a chance for you to, to flee the, 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 uh, the crushing waves of the Red Sea. But when you put Jesus back in Christmas, that's what you're calling for. I know, Merry Christmas. Uh, it's, I, I... <laughs> Jesus came to save the whole world. So we get that, the invitation is that we get to participate in that now. But we make the last first. We make the first last. We're participating in the incarnation. Being the body of Christ now. Let's prepare our hearts today as we await the advent of Jesus this week, the coming of Jesus. And assume the posture of the shepherds. Be as lowly as we can. Receive forgiveness. Receive the blessing. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.com.